Every one of us is in need. But with the love of God and the love of friends, we can be made whole. As the popularity of Jesus grew, crowds were crushing around to hear him teach and to see him perform miracles. The crowds were so intense around Jesus that a paralytic man could not be brought to him. So his deeply devoted friends devised a plan. We'll tear apart the roof of this house if we have to and lower him down by ropes. Our friend is in need and we will do whatever it takes to bring him to Jesus and make him well. His friends destroyed the roof, lowered him down, and there he was, face to face with Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus kneels down and says something unexpected and utterly shocking. My friend, your sins are forgiven. My friend, your sins are forgiven. The religious leaders were furious. How can this man forgive sins? Only God can forgive. Who does he think he is? This man had hoped to walk, but what he found in Jesus was something so much greater. He found an unbreakable relationship with God by grace alone. He didn't do anything to deserve such a gift. Forgiveness was simply offered, and forgiveness was simply received. A right relationship with God was given as a free gift of love through Jesus Christ. Then Jesus looks at the paralytic again and says, Get up. Get up and feel free to run home. You are healed. Every one of us is in need. But with the love of God and the love of friends, we can be made whole. This world is in need. But with the love of God and the love of friends, this world can be made whole. This story in Luke chapter 5 is the story of the saving work of God. And today as we continue our summer series through the life of Christ, this story is very important for a number of reasons that we'll talk about today. It's the story of how God saves us, and not just individually as he saved this paralytic, but collectively as God is saving the world. This story means so much. And the story of salvation really is about this theme that I want us to put in our heads, that every one of us is in need. But with the love of God and the love of friends, we can be made whole. This is what salvation is about. This world is broken and needs to be made whole. This world is far from God and needs to be brought near to God. This is the saving work of God. And, and the saving work of God is the reason why Jesus came. In fact, just before his crucifixion, Jesus made it clear what his mission was. He said it so succinctly in Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So simple. That's his mission statement. To seek and save the lost. This is what salvation is. This is the ministry of Jesus. Salvation is the ministry of Jesus. It is the theme of the Bible. Salvation is the very work of God on this earth. God is about seeking and saving the lost, making what's broken whole, bringing what's far from God near to God. This is what salvation is. But salvation for us oftentimes is very nebulous. We use the word a lot. I'm saved, I was saved, are you saved, Jesus saves. We use that word saved all the time. We use the word salvation all the time. But what does it really mean? We'll see what it means in the story of the paralytic. We also see what salvation means in a story that's unfolding right now, right before our eyes in a cave in Thailand. You've been following that story? Who hasn't been? This cave story is incredible. And, and you know the story. 
On June 23rd, 12 boys and their soccer coach went on an adventure. And it's an adventure that has, has happened hundreds of times before them. It's almost a rite of passage. You take young men into this cave, deep into this cave, roughly three miles into the cave through very narrow, narrow passageways. And in one particular cavern, you write your name and then you hike out. A little bit scary, for sure, but it's a rite of passage as young men are becoming men. And this soccer coach went on this adventure with these 12 boys. A heavy rain came, which can happen in, in the tropics. Heavy rain came, flooded many of the chambers, and they're trapped. Now, I don't know about you, but that is one of the scariest things I could imagine, right? I have no problem with heights. I could be as high, whatever. That never hurt anybody. Uh, no problem with snakes. No problem with clowns. Piece of cake, right? No sweat. But being in the dark underground with the only escape being through water and narrow passageways, I mean, I, that gives me the willies like you wouldn't even believe, right? So I've been kind of consumed with this story because it's my greatest fear, right? And, and it's also an incredible story that could have a terribly tragic ending. Twelve boys and a soccer coach could possibly perish, right? Nine days these boys were not found. And then they were found in a great celebration, right? Great celebration, I believe July 2nd. And then divers were bringing food and divers were bringing supplies and notes and really kind of staging to care for them. And sadly, one volunteer diver, Saman Kunan, uh, a volunteer, uh, gave his life to help these kids. Very sad story. This story grabs the heart. It stirs the soul and causes the whole world to be engrossed in this narrative of salvation. This story in the, in the cave is somewhat similar to the story of the paralytic that we're all in need. And with the love of friends and with the love of God, we can be saved, right? It's the story of what God is doing on this earth to seek and to save. And I love the cave story because they first had to be sought nine days of just seeking these kids and two British divers found them. Could you imagine how excited they were? Because hope was growing dim. Not only did they find them, they found them alive and actually in fairly good health. There's the seeking and then there's the saving. And now the, the saving operation is taking place. Um, roughly by about 9 a.m. our time, uh, maybe a little earlier, seven or eight, uh, four boys were pulled out, which is incredible, right? Absolutely incredible story. And in about five or six hours from now, another four will come out, and then another four about 10 hours after that as they recharge tanks and get their crews uh, in order. An Israeli diver uh, talked about the perils of this rescue operation. He's on site, and he says trying to get them back out is fighting a flood underwater. We're working in an environment where the force of the water is so great that the rescue divers are trying to figure out constantly how to move their bodies and how to breathe, and then we're going to be taking students out with us. Trying to pull ourselves back along the line and to be able to carry the boys with us is going to be an enormous effort. But this is the work of salvation. It's an enormous effort at times, but the end is so clear. The end of all that is broken, made whole in this world, and all that is far from God, brought near to God, that, that, that for those of us who have this sense of what God is doing, it's an exciting vision, right? This exciting vision that this world that God so loves will be made whole and will be brought near to God. It's an exciting vision that we see in part through the story of the paralytic and the story of these boys in the cave. That every one of us is in need, but with the love of God and the love of friends, we can be made whole, we can be saved. So let's look at the story of the paralytic. It's a very short story, so I'll read the first half of it and uh, we'll dissect it a little bit here. One day Jesus was teaching and the Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. 
Whenever you see Pharisees and teachers of the law, just thank Darth Vader, right? These are the bad guys. These are the bad guys. Now, um, whenever you see this, just think of the theme song. Think of, the, uh, of Darth Vader coming in. These are the enemies of Jesus. They're the enemies of the love of God. They're the enemies of grace. These are the legalists. We talked about that last week, right? We took a little poll last week. Who's a legalist? Who's a mystic? Uh, if you weren't here, uh, the results were that about 57% of us are fall in more of the legalistic category. That's me. Rules, regulations, that God wants obedience. God's want, God wants us compliant, and then he'll bless us. And then there's the mystic, more of the ones driven by kind of emotion that I want to feel and experience God. And if I can feel and experience him, then I'll have a sense of his, his grace in my life. Pharisees are the legalists. They're demanding obedience, demanding obedience. And they're telling people, if you are obedient, then God will bless you. They hated Jesus, hated him, because Jesus was preaching love and showing grace. So they wanted Jesus put to an end, right? They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. People were flocking to Jesus, including the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, because they wanted him to be discredited. They wanted him to be humiliated. They were looking for any reason to tear Jesus apart and to discredit him publicly. But the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men carrying a paralyzed man and tried to take him into the house uh, to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof, lowered him on a mat, threw uh, tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. This is quite a scene. It's quite a story. Jesus is teaching in this house and the roof is getting torn apart and here's this man lowered right down in front of him, almost literally on his lap. It's a very unique story for a number of reasons in the Gospels. Uh, one reason why it's so unique is because it brings in this element of salvation that is frankly kind of cool. It's, it's heartwarming that we are saved by friends who care. We are saved by friends who care. There's not many stories in the, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where there's a group of friends surrounding somebody in need. Very often in the Gospels, somebody's alone because they're in need. And because they perhaps have alienated people or they're sick or diseased and they're by themselves. This is very unique in that we see a vision of what can happen when friends care for each other. We're saved by friends who care. Let me show you a model of the house that these friends took the paralytic man to. Uh, this is your average house in Galilee, the northern area of Israel, Capernaum particularly. About an 18 by 18 box uh, of brick. An average house would be two stories. The bottom floor had animals. Don't you have animals in your bottom floor? These are goats, sheep, chicken, donkeys. If you had some money, there would be a cow in there living in your house downstairs, right? So if we ever complain about how our house looks or, or <laughs> smells, just that we're not in Capernaum during the time of Christ. All the animals are downstairs, and of course the kitchen is right next to the barn, right? Yes, the kitchen's right next to the barn, and then a storage room. The downstairs courtyard would be about 18 feet by nine feet. That's where Jesus was, that's where he was teaching. And there was a crush of people. You could slam 50 people into that uh, courtyard. But that crowd was overflowing by the popularity of Jesus. Jesus was known as a teacher of great power and a man of great miracles. And so people were crushing in. The Pharisees, the Darth Vaders were in there. Everybody was in there crushing around Jesus. So these friends couldn't get the paralytic near Jesus. So they went um, up the ladder that went to the roof. Every uh, roof had a ladder that went to it. And the roof was made of timbers and then reeds and mats of thorns covered by clay. And they would reclay the roof before every rainy season. It would be waterproof. 
And it took some, some effort to get up there. It took some effort to get in there. But that's the scene in which this whole thing was taking place. One thing we learn of this story is something very endearing, that friends carry each other. Friends carry each other. This is just a staple of friendship. You know, sometimes we have to carry our friends. Sometimes we have to carry our friends who are struggling in their marriage and we come alongside and bear that burden. Sometimes we carry a friend who's struggling with our kids. We carry a friend who's struggling with addiction or depression or anxiety or other uh, emotional uh, seasons in their life. We carry our friends through abuse. We carry our friends through suffering, through sickness, through health problems, through injury, or through the loss of a loved one. Sometimes we have to carry our friends, carry our friends through a financial crisis. Whatever it is, friends carry each other during times of need. It's a great privilege to carry our friends. It's a great pr privilege for a church like ours to carry each other during times of need. That's why we have such vast ministries to help one another. Rancho is absolutely wonderful at, at carrying friends who are in need. That's why we have a community mission of hope that uh, carries 500 families with food and with uh, supplies to the end of the month. That's why we're starting the Joni and Friends Camp today. Rancho Community Church runs the Joni and Friends Camp in uh, Marietta. It's a camp for uh, children who are disabled and a ministry to their parents who never get a break. Our whole staff and dozens of volunteers mobilized to run the Joni and Friends Camp. We're here to help. We're here to help with local ministries, local partnerships. Uh, we're here to help through support groups, celebrate recovery. We're even helping internationally, people we will never meet. We're just here to help. We're here to carry our friends, the friends we know and love here, the friends we know and love in the community, and the friends we don't know but love throughout this world. It's a privilege to carry friends. But it's also important to remember that sometimes we need to be carried. There, there's no shame in thinking, okay, I'm really struggling, but I'm gonna keep it to myself. I'm really struggling, but I've got this on my own. That's not the nature of friendship. True friendship not only carries a friend, but true friendship says, you know what, I need some help here. This is a season of my life where I need to be carried. I'm struggling at home, struggling at work, struggling financially, struggling emotionally, struggling physically. It's okay, there's no shame in that. It's a privilege to carry a friend. We also see in this story of Luke 5 that friends sacrifice to help. Friends make sacrifices to help. Put this in the back of your brain. Friendship is tested when work is required. Friendship is tested when work is required. We have a lot of acquaintances, right? But if, if they are really in need and they need some work to help them out, and if we just find ourselves being busy, you know, I'm a little busy that day, right? That's a test of our friendship. Or if, if we need help and nobody's really stepping up to put in any work, that's a test of friendship. So we see with a paralytic, he had amazing friends. That paralytic had amazing friends. Those friends worked to carry him out of the house across the city. Those friends worked to carry him to the roof. They worked to tear apart the house of a stranger. <laughs> that must've been interesting. They worked to lower him down. They worked to repair the house later. No doubt they had to come back later, repair the house and pay for it, right? They worked. Whatever it takes to help this friend, they're gonna do it. They're gonna do it. We carry a friend, we sacrifice to help a friend, and then friends bring each other closer to God. Friends bring each other closer to God. Now, this one's a little scary for us, right? We can understand the concept of carrying a friend, and maybe we've done it. We can understand the concept of working to help a friend, maybe we've done it. But bringing a friend closer to God's a little bit scary for us for a number of reasons. Friends sometimes know who we are, and friends sometimes know what we do, and sometimes what we do isn't all that great. 
And so we're a little uncomfortable talking to our friends about God because they know us and they know what we do wrong. They know what we've said to our spouse. They know what we've said to our kid. They've known maybe some habits that we have that aren't great. And so sometimes we don't want to talk about God to our friends because they might think we are what? Hypocrites, right? So we're a little afraid. I totally understand that, right? Sometimes we don't want to talk about God to a friend because we don't know enough. You know, we're not a preacher. We haven't been trained. And, and we might stumble with our words. Or worse yet, we might say something wrong or look stupid trying. I totally understand that. Let's look at the friends of this paralytic in Luke 5. The friends of the paralytic did not try to heal him. That wasn't their gig. The friends of the paralytic didn't try to preach to him. That wasn't their gig. They understood what they could do, and what they could do was bring their friend to God, bring their friend to Jesus. They just said, we're going to take you from here to here, and in doing so, we're going to bring you close to God. So know your gig, right? I met a a new friend of mine. He's been around Rancher for a couple of months, and this is kind of his home base, uh, so I discovered, and he feels a a calling by God that, that when God prompts him, he just gets up, gets in his car, and it's kind of a beater car, and he just goes to various cities and various states specifically to bring God's love and God's grace to young cancer patients. That's a very specific gig. And he doesn't have a lot of money. In fact, it's all on faith. He just gets up and goes. He does not know where his meals are coming from, doesn't know where gas money is coming from. He just goes. He feels a calling from God that, that that's that strong. His last uh, tour was to the East Coast of the United States, the Northeast Coast of the United States, totally on faith, ministering to kids with cancer. I think that's pretty cool. It's not my gig. And my gig is not his gig. And our gig is not your gig. What is God specifically gifting you at? And how can you um, use what he's given you to bring your friends closer? And it could just, just be what the paralytic friends did. They're the heroes of this story, right? They put in the work to bring this person closer to God. They didn't try to heal him. They didn't try to preach to him. They just brought him. It's a ministry of invitation. It's all over the Bible, all over the Bible. You can have a ministry of invitation. Where could you bring a friend of yours where Jesus Christ is preached and the love of Christ is practiced? Where's a place? Maybe Rancho, right? We do a lot of things to help people discover the grace of God and a lot of things to help people. Our children's ministry is incredible. We are absolutely fiercely dedicated to equipping the next generation and loving the next generation. Children's ministry, youth ministry, that's why we have a school. We have a mission from God to love and equip the next generation, right? Bring your neighborhood kids to church. So many of you did that with our VBS. You just brought your whole neighborhood. We had to close down registration at 600 plus kids. Uh, a bunch of them, about half of them I've heard, don't even come to Rancho because we wanna be here for the community. Invite kids, invite youth. Uh, we do church services that we try to make sure they're accessible to people who, who believe in Christ and people who don't, right? Every time we prepare a message, we wanna encourage people who are believers and we wanna bring God's grace to people who don't yet believe. I manuscript every single word of every single sermon because I want to be very intentional that we're here to equip the believer, but we also want it to be fairly easy for an unbeliever to come in and connect with God's grace, right? And so you can invite people to church. Invite people to our many ministries that help. Community Mission of Hope, Celebrate Recovery. There's so many things we do that are easily easy to invite people to. Pastoral Counseling, Safe Harbor Counseling Center. There's so many ways to help. You can invite people to our special events. We've got some pretty cool special events. There's one coming up. You can put it on your calendar, September 16th. You must be here September 16th. Must, right? 
It's our 50th anniversary celebration here at Rancho, which we're very excited about. It's going to be a great, great day. And some of you are thinking, oh, you know, I got this once-in-a-lifetime trip of taking a cruise around the Greek islands. Cancel it. Cancel it. <laughs> They'll always be there. The 50th celebration won't. September 16th is going to be awesome. Free In-N-Out Burger versus Greek Island Cruise. Come on. Free In-N-Out. Uh, free shirt. Free book from our founding pastor, Steve Strickmans. Uh, it is going to be a party. We're all going to be together in one spot. It's going to be very, very cool. So be here and invite people. This isn't just for us. It's an invitation to celebrate what God is doing here on this earth. So we are saved by our friendship uh, with one another. We're also saved by a friendship with God. This is something else that comes out of Luke 5. We're saved by a friendship with God. Listen to the word Jesus uses, the very first word he uses to this paralytic man. He says this, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, what's the word? Friend. Friend, your sins are forgiven. What an incredible encounter. The first word Jesus uses to this total stranger is the word friend. Why would Jesus use that word? Doesn't even know him. Well, I'm going to speculate here a little bit, but I believe Jesus saw the friendship around this man and kind of wanted to be in the mix. What incredible friends this paralytic had. Paralytics and people with uh, chronic diseases and uh, lifelong handicaps, they didn't have a lot of friends in the ancient world. They were considered cursed by God. It was too uncomfortable to be around them, right? But this paralytic had friends surrounding him. I think Jesus just wanted to be in the mix. Friend, 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 good, yeah. <laughs> but I also think Jesus wanted to show the heart of God. He wanted to show the heart of God. This paralytic thought he was cursed because he was sick. He thought he was cursed. In fact, one scholar says this, paralysis in ancient times was a physical condition sometimes associated with sin and divine judgment. Keep in mind, 2,000 years ago, they did not know why people were sick or handicapped. They didn't know. We know now why people are sick and handicapped. Genetic, bacteria, viruses, environment, whatever it is, right? We know. We got it pretty well figured out, and we're tackling diseases one by one. They had no clue why people were sick, no clue why people were handicapped, no clue why this man was paralyzed. And so the, the mystic thought was he must be judged for either his sin or the sin of his family. He spent his whole life believing he was judged by God because he was paralyzed. Could you imagine the weight of that? So what does Jesus say? You're forgiven. Jesus wanted to relieve this man of the burden that his sin or the sin of his family causes paralysis. What an incredible thing. A couple things to notice about this. I think they're pretty important. You can take this as far as you want to in your head. This man did not ask for forgiveness. Didn't ask for it, but God gave it to him. Sometimes we think we have to ask for forgiveness in order to be forgiven by God. You don't. This man proves it. This man didn't repent of any sin before he was forgiven. Kind of in the more traditional world, repent of your sins and then be forgiven. That formula is not the formula of Jesus. It's just not. This man didn't even say he believed in Jesus before he was forgiven. That's a brain freak out. Get this. He was simply forgiven by God as a gift. Forgiveness is a gift of God by grace alone through Christ alone. It is so important that we receive that because so many people believe that they can only be forgiven if they ask, if they repent, if they're sincere, if they keep their belief going and never waver, never doubt and never struggle. No way. We're only forgiven by God's grace alone. That is so freeing. We can relax. We can enjoy 
God's grace, simply given as a gift. Now, some of us know how to give forgiveness freely. Not everybody, but some people know how to give forgiveness freely. We're potty training a dog right now. I'm telling you. (laughs) There's very little on earth worse than that. Maybe being stuck in a cave, but potty training a dog is really frustrating, right? So here's this dog. It's a multi-poo, cutest thing in the world, way cuter than your dogs. I mean, just hands down cuter than your dogs. Your dogs are lame. Um, this thing is, it, you know, just so close to potty training, but every once in a while, make a poo-poo where he does not, uh, you know, should not be making a poo-poo. And the frustration, you're so close. Just a dog, right? It's trying. I could tell it's trying, right? Uh, but isn't quite figuring it out yet. I can just kind of imagine, I don't want to, you know, say humans are like dogs, but in, in the face of God, we're not quite there yet, right? I can just imagine God looking at us when we make all of our little doo-doos, all of our mistakes, He doesn't want to pour out vengeance and wrath and blah. He pours out grace, and we see that through Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 5. Man didn't ask for it, but he got it. This man didn't repent, but he got it. He didn't even express belief, but he got forgiveness. Now, I don't know how far to take that. In theological terms, it's called regeneration. In theological terms, it's the Spirit of God who gives us life, and then we believe as a result. That's the theological way of putting it. The experiential way is just know how loved by God you are, know that you're forgiven, know that you don't have to work in it, you don't have to be devout, you don't have to be sincere always, you don't have to be perfect in your behavior, you are just by identity declared forgiven by grace. Isn't that cool, isn't that freeing? That is so cool. Get this, God told this man he was forgiven, then the man believed it. That's kind of the theological order. God regenerates by his spirit, then we believe in response. In other words, belief doesn't activate God's forgiveness. Belief embraces God's forgiveness. Again, this is so important. If you want to live truly free in your relationship with God, then just know your relationship with God does not depend on you. Doesn't depend on your amount of belief, doesn't depend on your amount of compliance with all the religious rules, doesn't matter how religious you are. Your standing with God is only based on His love for you, and He declares you His perfect Son, His perfect daughter through Christ. Jesus paid the price for your sin, you don't have to. Jesus earned your forgiveness on the cross, you don't have to. That's the message coming out of Luke chapter 5. So why did Jesus specifically reveal that his sins were forgiven? He doesn't do that every time he heals somebody. I think Jesus revealed this man's forgiveness for two reasons. Number one, to free the man from the burden that his sin caused his sickness. Jesus just wants him to know that. Jesus wants you to know that. When a bad thing happens in your life, it's not because God's getting you back. It's just because bad things happen in life. It's really that simple. I'm sorry, I can't connect all the mystic dots for you. It's just really that simple. Jesus wants us to know that bad things don't happen in life because God's getting us back. He wanted this man to know that. Secondly, Jesus wanted to poke the religious leaders in the eye. He loves doing that. When the Darth Vaders come, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the lawyers, when they all come with their burden of law and guilt and shame and judgment and condemnation, when the Darth Vaders come in the room, Jesus wants to poke, poke, poke them in the eye. And he doesn't do that to just get them back. He, He does it because he loves them. And speaking as a formal legalist, sometimes the only way a legalist can have their hard heart turned to a soft heart is by confrontation. 
And Jesus confronts the legalists time and time and time again, overturning their tables in the temple, screaming at them in the top of the lungs, his lungs, condemning them seven times with the seven woes of Matthew 23. He goes after them. Why? Because their heart is so hard and they are pouring out judgment and condemnation on everybody. Sometimes Jesus has to say, come on, you are a hypocrite. You are twice the son of hell. You're making no converts for the kingdom of heaven, right? Screaming these things out because if their hard heart can get broken, he can reveal a soft human heart in there, made in the image of God, a heart of love. So the reason why Jesus pokes them in the eye is not, to, not for fun, but so that they'll come to the realization of God's love even for them, because they are the ones most in prison. Jesus knew the forgiveness of sin would cause a total meltdown of the religious, religious leaders, and that's exactly what happened. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they're right. Only God can forgive sins. Only God can forgive sin. And so when Jesus says to this man, I forgive your sin, he was essentially claiming to be the fullness of deity, the fullness of God in the flesh, and they flipped out. They flipped out, accusing Jesus of blasphemy, which was a capital crime. And ultimately down the road, that did cost Jesus his life. Why does Jesus forgive this man's sin? Why does he reveal the forgiveness of God to this man? Because forgiveness is so important to salvation. The idea of what's broken being made whole and what's far from God being brought near to God, this vision of salvation, the cornerstone of salvation is forgiveness. I'll give you an example out of the Thailand cave. When the divers discovered the 12 boys and the coach, one of the first things the coach wanted to do was to get a letter to the the boy's parents. So he wrote a letter to the boy's parents. It was a letter begging for forgiveness and expressing sorrow from the deepest depths of his heart. You can imagine what it's like to be this, these boys' coach. Imagine the guilt, imagine the shame, imagine imagining what coming out of that cave might be like for this coach who led the boys into the cave. Imagine what he's feeling. He wrote a letter to the parents begging their forgiveness and the parents wrote a letter back. I'm gonna read it to you. Dear Coach Ake, we as your soccer team members' parents believe in you and your spirit that you've been taking good care of our boys. We just want you to know that this is not your fault. We all here don't blame you and just want you not to blame yourself. We all understand all the situations that have happened and we're here to support you. We appreciate all your loving support and care for our sons. We are waiting for the news that our boys and you are brought home safely. Isn't that incredible? The parents whose kids are at risk of death chose to forgive the coach. What an incredible story of forgiveness. See, forgiveness is what binds relationships together. You can't have a relationship that doesn't need forgiveness. No two persons can be together without offending somebody, right? It's just the nature of things. But the measure of that relationship is based on our forgiveness of one another. That's the measure of a marriage is forgiveness. The measure of relationship with kids is forgiveness, friends, neighbors. We have to forgive each other a lot because we all mess up. When it comes to our relationship with God, God never offends. We are only the ones who offend. And so God is in charge of how he forgives and he forgives completely and he forgives unconditionally. And he proved that by sending his son to die on a cross to forgive our sins. That's what forgives us, the cross of Christ, not us. 
We are saved by friendship with God, and that friendship is expressed by unconditional forgiveness. We're saved by friends who care. We're saved by friendship with God. And finally, we are saved by selfless help. We are saved by selfless help. Luke chapter five, Jesus says, I want you to know the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sin. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. This is a divine healing. Jesus was known for his divine healings. Now Jesus didn't heal everybody. He healed in waves as we talked about earlier. He healed this man. Sometimes he healed, sometimes he didn't, right? In the early church, the apostles sometimes healed in waves and sometimes they didn't. But after the the person of Christ, the gospel of Christ, the church of Christ was established right around the mid-first century, miracles stopped happening in a normal way. Miracles, again, to use the term, a theological term, is not normative. In other words, they're not normal. The miracles that happen around Christ simply do not happen in the same way today. Now, some of you may disagree with that, and that's okay. Here at Rancho, we don't all have to agree. Here at Rancho, you don't all have to agree with me. Some of you are like, I know, I've been here a while. (laughs) Miracles are not normal. So I'm gonna be very straight with you. I'm always honest with you. Sometimes I I pay a little bit of a price for that, but I'm always gonna be honest with you. I have been doing ministry for 30 years full time. I've been all over the world seeing all kinds of things, five continents, I don't know how many countries, seeing all kinds of things out there, both in city life, urban life, uh, rural life, and tribal life. I have been to well more than a dozen healing services, healing conferences, healing seminars, divine healing. I've been, I've seen hundreds of videos from faith healers. I'm a part of a pastor's network that specifically teaches in faith healing. Our denominational affiliation embraces faith healing, divine healing. We've had people on staff at Rancho that have said they have the gift of divine healing. I have never seen a divine healing. Not once, not once. I've never even heard a story of a divine healing that looked anything like the ministry of Jesus, where the paralyzed walk, the blind see, the lepers are cleansed, people are raised from the dead. I've never met a doctor, doctor, I've got a bunch of doctor friends, never met a doctor who has told me the story of a healing that can be only attributed to divine miracle. I've heard of headaches and backaches that have felt better after prayer. I've heard of emotional problems and addictions that are relieved after prayer. And all that is wonderful, it's wonderful. I have prayed times without number for people, either personally or in my own prayer life. And I pray with fervency and I pray with faith that God can absolutely heal. I've seen people encouraged by prayers of healing. I have met dozens of people who claim to have been healed and have heard their story. So it's not a lack of belief. It's not a lack of faith. I'm just telling you by experience and the experience of most people, divine healing isn't normative. Here's a couple questions for you. You can feel free to answer them. They're not trick questions. Has God healed in the past? What's the answer? Can God heal? What's the answer? Will God heal again? Absolutely. Every time I pray, I pray with faith, faith in God and hope every single time. I just haven't seen it. And that's okay. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. In fact, you look at the the ministry of Jesus. Why did Jesus heal that man? Well, he healed the paralytic to prove who he was. He healed the paralytic to prove who he was. We know who Jesus is. That's established. So just because we don't see the healing ministry of Jesus now like they did back then, does that mean the healing ministry of Jesus is irrelevant now? No, Uh, it is. The light bulb went off in my head uh, not too long ago 
to be quite frank with you. And, and here's something that just, just came off the pages of scripture to me and I hope it helps you. Jesus did in an instant what God empowers us to do as a lifestyle. If you've struggled with healing and you've seen a lot of fraud and fraud is out there like you wouldn't even believe. Something happened locally not too long ago that was just a fraud at a level that it was unimaginable and unthinkable using the name of God to do these fake healings to get money. I mean, this stuff happens all the time. It is so grotesque out there, right? If you struggle with this concept of divine healing, why doesn't the healing of Jesus happen now? And, and, and why is it that there's so much abuse from divine healers? And, and why is it that, that this doesn't make sense? Why, why fervent prayer would result in, in, in action? If you've struggled with that, I want you to think about this. What Jesus did in an instant is what God empowers us to do as a lifestyle today. That helped me tremendously. Let me give you just a couple of examples and we're done from our summer series. When Jesus played with children, took children in his arms, children who were cast aside, children who were rejected, children who had no place in society, when Jesus picks them up and plays with them in that moment, that means we are now empowered to equip and love the next generation as a lifestyle. Last week, we talked about the woman at the well. Jesus elevated women to the place of equal dignity, equal respect, equal opportunity with men. When Jesus raises people to equal opportunity in a moment, that means we are now empowered to raise people of all genders, raise people of all socioeconomic backgrounds, raise people of all ethnicities to the exact same level of dignity and respect and opportunity as a lifestyle. When Jesus befriends in an instant those who were labeled sinners, the adulterous woman, we'll talk about that next week, the tax collector, when Jesus befriended sinners, ate in their homes, right, and paid a deep, heavy personal price for being a religious person hanging out with the sinners, what Jesus did in that instant, we are now empowered to do as a lifestyle, befriending everybody, everybody, without discrimination. When Jesus heals this paralytic man, we too are now to bring the ministry of healing to this broken world. Wherever this world is broken, God can use us to make it whole. Wherever this world is far from God, God can use us to bring, bring it near to him. To care for the sick, to be generous to the poor, to bring friendships to people who are on the margin, to work for justice issues, to see to it that everybody on the margin is brought to power and to voice so that everybody is treated equally. What Jesus did in an instant, we get to do as a lifestyle. So the ministry of Jesus of raising the paralytic, raising the dead, cleansing the leper, that may still happen today. I just haven't seen it, and I'm okay with that. But what I do know is when Jesus healed somebody, he made a broken body whole. I now know what he did in that instance. I get to be a part of as a lifestyle to bring healing to this broken world. And what was the result of the ministry of Jesus to the paralytic man? Verse 26, Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. I envision a church that advances the cause of Christ. That's our mission statement, right? Thousands of friends advancing the cause of Christ. Don't you see that in the paralytics, friends? Here's, here's a dozen friends or so helping this paralytic out. Friends advancing the cause of Christ. We get to do that today. When people saw the ministry of Jesus, they saw remarkable things. I have a vision that when people see the church, they see remarkable things. They don't see the Pharisees and the Judgers. They don't see the Darth Vaders cruising in and out. They see the life of Jesus working out today. What Jesus did in an instant, we get to do today. We get to equip and love the next generation. We get to see equality for all. We get to care for people that are in need. We get to advance the cause of Christ. 
by befriending those in need, sacrificing to help them, and bringing them to the love of Christ. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your grace. We see your grace so clearly through the pages of the scripture, particularly in the gospels as we study the life of Christ. We see the full presence of God, the full power of God, the full heart of God at work through Jesus Christ, your son, the fullness of divinity and the fullness of humanity. And in Luke 5, we see grace, grace expressed by giving forgiveness, forgiveness that wasn't asked for, forgiveness that wasn't earned. There was no repentance, not even an expression of belief. You just gave new life and forgiveness to this paralytic man because of your unconditional love. Thank you that this world needs to hear that forgiveness. They need to hear that there is love. Here there is grace, grace that was proven through the cross of Jesus Christ. He gave his life to take the full suffering and sin of the world upon himself. And when we believe upon Christ, we get to experience the salvation that is freely given to us. So I pray that we would be friends that bring our friends to the foot of Christ. We may not be preachers. We may not be evangelists but we can bring our friends to the foot of Jesus Christ. We can invite them here, we can show love, we can show care, we can show concern, we can help carry them in time of need, we can work uh, for their benefit, God, we can be as Christ to them. I pray that through us your grace would be made so known to this world that people will come to faith in Jesus Christ, the one who brings grace and forgiveness to a world in, so, in such desperate need to be made whole and close to you. In Christ's name we pray and everybody said, amen.